Hello, this is Dr. Lee McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I am so excited about our guest today. It's Dr. Phyllis Chappelle, who is a supportive and palliative care physician at Houston Methodist Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Chappelle. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. So have you spent your entire career as a physician as a palliative care physician? No, I actually was a neuroradiologist for a couple of decades, actually, before uh, switching into palliative medicine. That's wonderful. What made you decide to make the switch? I had actually um, missed uh, direct patient care. And um, I sometimes tell the medical students that I was actually asked to facilitate a small group at church, small group, they wanted multiple small groups of women to discuss the topic of the sermon over a five-week series, and I'm not really comfortable facilitating small groups, but I somehow agreed to, Mm -hmm. and then every week, my group was never on the subject of the sermon. It would always turn into a discussion of grief and loss, because I had several women who were widows, I had some who had lost children. I had one who had had so many losses and felt so unsupported that she actually went back into training and became a grief counselor. Oh, my goodness. But one woman in particular uh, struck me because she kept expressing amazement. I just didn't know he was that sick. I didn't know he was going to die. And it probably was the third or fourth week into the series that I asked her when he died. And she said it had been 12 years ago. Oh, my. And I was so struck by that that on the way home I was just kept thinking, is there something we could do in medicine that would help people not get trapped in this kind of grief? And I actually did a Google search on physicians and death and came up with this field, which actually being in neuroradiology and not in academics, I had actually never heard of. Uh And I came up with the field of hospice and palliative medicine. Wow. And, you know, when you think about it, when you think about the field of internal medicine, which is about 3,000 years old, seriously, palliative medicine only came to the U.S. in like the mid to latter 1980s. So it is still a relatively new field. And when you consider our growth, it's spectacular. I talk to so many physicians who are like you, who this is a second career for them. And it strikes me that, you know, back when you think to your interview for medical school, why do you want to do this, young lady? You probably said, I want to help people. And where else can you do that better than in palliative medicine? Oh, so true. I have not infrequently have doctors who ask me to see somebody say, oh, my gosh, I don't know how you do this work. And many times I think the opposite. Gosh, how how blessed and lucky I am to be able to do this work. It is a sacred mission, that's for sure. So for our listeners, uh, Dr. Chappelle also is a student in our online Master of Science program, and I'm always sending out appeals for anything exciting and cool that our students and faculty and alumni have been doing for our monthly newsletter. And Dr. Chappelle said, you won't believe what I just did. So why don't you tell (laughs) our listeners what you've been up to, you troublemaker you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this most recent, the most recent case I think I shared with you is a, um, a relatively young man with a malignant um, glioblastoma multiforme, a brain tumor, and actually only diagnosed in November, and already in January was told we have nothing further to offer you. Oh, my. Um, he is paralyzed on one side. His speech is impaired. And when I saw him, I think 
that the intention of the physician who consulted me was perhaps that I would um, be able to convince him not to continue, not to complete this trial of radiation therapy. Mm-hmm. But he really wanted to do the last few courses. And, and I was, as I was talking to him to find out who would be his surrogate decision maker, as I often do, I asked him, if you were so sick that you couldn't make decisions for yourself, who would you want to make decisions for you? And he said, my fiance, Taisha. Mm-hmm. And so I asked him if he still hoped to get married, and he said yes. And I said, would you want to get married here in the hospital? And he said no. And I said, what if it was the hospital chapel? Because I thought he might think that I'm in a room with IVs and poles mm-hmm. and things beeping. Mm-hmm. And when I said, would you want to get married in the hospital chapel? He said yes. And mm-hmm. so I, I thought that this might not be something that his fiance wanted, so I said um, will you ask Taisha or should I? And he asked me if I would ask her. Oh, my goodness. And Yeah, so I called and asked her. And she was so excited. She said, yes, I would want to. And um, I really credit um, the palliative care social worker and the people she contacted because she said she'd never done it before, but she would mm-hmm. make it happen. <laughs> she reached out to all sorts of people, mobilized all sorts of people, including the officiant who did it at no charge. And the, mm-hmm. um, then we found out he was going to be discharged, and we were a little worried that they discharged him on Friday, and an ambulance company volunteered to pick him up and bring him in and take him home uh-huh. for the wedding. Uh-huh. So the wedding happened in the hospital chapel, and um, public relations or somebody um, reached out to a news channel, and three news channels and the Houston Chronicle all appeared, and uh, it was just beautiful. It was heartbreakingly beautiful. You could hear her weeping from the bride, weeping from the back of the chapel before she even entered. Oh. It was just amazing. Wow. And I've watched the videos that you sent me, and I'll post the link also <clears throat> with this podcast. He was crying. She was crying. Everybody in the audience was crying. You were crying. Oh, my right? gosh. Yes. And um, the, I, the um, CBS, um, their national correspondent or something, came out to interview us, and he asked me, um, how did it happen that you proposed for him? And I didn't realize <laughs> that I had until I saw the news clip where she said that he had asked her several times to marry him, and she said no, because he always seemed to be compared, uh, concerned just about money. Mm-hmm. But she said that um, since this uh, brain tumor, like he had changed, and he was more concerned about her, and she could feel that uh, she really loved him. And yeah. she said, that, but um, he was afraid to pop the question, so Dr. Chappelle popped it for him. Mm-hmm. I thought I was asking her, I thought... Will you marry me? Yes, had already been, (laughs) and you know, asked and answered. I thought I was asking her if the chapel was an okay place for the marriage Mm -hmm. to take place. But apparently I proposed for him. You did the whole deed, girl. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. It's so amazing. They had a bunch of little children there. I saw in the video. Yeah. Yeah. The three boys at the front were hers. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So touching, and I see that uh, really your whole team pulled together to make this happen. There's a beautiful cake I saw as well. Yeah, the um, shirt he was wearing, the chaplain bought for him. She asked him his favorite color, and he said blue. I hadn't realized that. I thought it was all blue and white because those are kind of the Methodist hospital colors, but apparently that was his his request for oh. blue. Wow. Um, and how is uh, Mr. Corey doing today? 
the amazing thing is, to me, so amazing, I mean, because this is a man that sort of struck down, you would say, in the prime of his life over just a few months. It was like a Lou Gehrig moment. Uh, Corey said that he thinks he is the luckiest man in the world. Wow. It just, uh, So he's still I with mean, us? It, yes, yes, ma'am. Oh, that's good. Good. Yes. Well, I hope they yeah, have some time together before his disease progresses. Oh, me too. Me too. But I guess medical school did not prepare you for proposing for patients and planning <laughs> weddings and receptions, did it? <laughs> no, not exactly. This falls under that other duties as described <laughs> category, don't you think? <laughs> My, my social worker says that it's because um, we're so careful about uh, goals of care. Mm-hmm. So this was a goal of his beyond uh, yes. what we normally offer. Yes, you know, it, it strikes me you should be careful what you ask for because it, I'm a pharmacist by training, so I'm always thinking about the drugs and how can we change the drugs and add drugs and take some away. But I, even I've learned the hard way that one of the first questions I ask is what's one thing I can do for you? And apparently he had an agenda that was different from, you know, things you would normally ask your doctor to do, much to his oh. benefit because you sure came through. That's amazing. But I have to say, um, when you speak of um, your your knowledge of the drugs is, is such a gift, and especially for somebody like me, after spending all that time in neuroradiology, I, um, my um, chief of, of uh, palliative uh, sent me to a um, geriatrics mini-fellowship for a week. And one of the assignments was uh, two drugs that you use frequently and how they might be used differently in the elderly. And um, the only thing I knew to think of was iodinated contrast and gadolinium because that's about the only two drugs I uh-huh. use. So the whole pharmacy piece has been really intimidating for me. And that's one of the places where the master's program has been such a gift. Oh, thank really, you. Such I'm a glad gift. Yeah. Oh, it has really increased my confidence and and I really feel more like I can help people. I know a lot of my consults are goals of care. I'm like the queen of goals of care. But mm-hmm. um, to be able to do this other piece better is just huge for me. Wonderful. I know you told yeah. me, I believe in one of your assignments, about a woman whose pain was so poorly controlled she had requested euthanasia. And you oh. altered her analgesic regimen. Tell us about that. Oh, um, this was sort of... Um, um, a family who came to this country just for treatment. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't live here, and they were far from home, a very close mm-hmm. family. And um, when I walked onto the, the unit I had been consulted, the uh, nurse approached me, and the nurse was just distraught. She said, it's been horrible. She's been crying out. She asked for euthanasia. The um, son and the husband uh, were weeping and said the same thing. And then were careful to ask, you don't do that in Texas, right? And I said, no, sir, we don't. Um, so they were a little, just a tiny bit concerned. So um, I did get her started, um, you know, figured out the MEDD. The problem was that she was getting um, kind of large IV boluses of hydromorphone. Mm-hmm. hydromorphone. And then she would just uh, fall asleep, be unable to, con- you know, to communicate with her family, and then she would wake up again in pain. And she said she was just being tortured. She didn't want to go on like this. Oh my. And um, so it did start her on a small um, IV, 
um, and also the patient-controlled analgesia, and mm-hmm. also added a little steroid. She had mm-hmm. uh, bone and liver medicine, mm-hmm. so possibly capsular pain. And um, she was just so much better. She was just mm-hmm. so much better, so grateful. And, and the family, it, it, it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful That's to amazing. be able to do that. Yeah. Nobody should die without Decadrone on board, don't you think? I agree. I put it in public water. Good grief. It's just, yeah, her appetite was better. She was uh, smiling probably too. It helps her appetite and her mood and everything, right? Oh, oh, and she might, and she's so hopeful now um, that she might live to see her grandchild, which is expected uh, probably in 10 days or so. Oh, my gosh. Um, her daughter is very near, and so she's going to deliver here. Uh-huh. Um, and um, she accepts that she may not be able to go home to her oh. home country, but she's mm-hmm. so much better. Wow. Well, my daughter just had a baby two months ago, so I know what that's like. Ooh, that's pretty powerful Ooh, That's my there. goal. Yeah. That is my but, next goal, to have grandchildren. There you go. Let me tell you, I, I know I love my daughter, but I think I like this little baby like 15 times more because he's so adorable. <laughs> oh, gosh. I noticed that with my mother when it came to my children, too. She likes them better than you? <laughs> yeah, when I stopped going to church for a while, it wasn't a big deal. But she said, you better take my grandbaby to church. That's it's, right. You know, if I don't make it into heaven, it's, it's kind of okay. But <laughs> That's funny. So, you know, I think you would agree with me that all healthcare providers, all disciplines, should possess basic palliative care skills. Would you agree with me on that? Absolutely. Absolutely, especially when we consider there's not enough. When I think of how busy we are and also think of all the patients who aren't receiving consultations from our service, Mm -hmm. then I think, yeah, everybody should have some basic knowledge of this Mm -hmm. that they can provide to patients. Mm -hmm. I like the model Dr. Von Gutten espouses, which is all all providers should have primary palliative skills. So it's the basics of communication, the basics of having the goals of care conversation, the basics of pain and symptom management, which is why in our program I get the question over and over again, why are you making the chaplain learn about constipation and anxiety? Because I think that's important. If the chaplain comes to be with the patient and notices the patient is physically uncomfortable or seems anxious, he or she needs to tell the nurse because there are things that we can do about that. And similarly, um, as if, even though I am a pharmacist, I recognize that there are many causes to pain. It's not just physical discomfort. I like Dame Cicely Saunders' picture of the, the total picture of pain. It could be psychological, spiritual, social, so many things going on. So I do believe that we have to be cross-trained to a good degree and have these primary skills. Then he talks about secondary palliative care providers, which is going to be kind of what you do for a living. You work on a specialty floor in a specialized um, team environment, and and then tertiary would be uh, practitioners who do research and so forth along with their practice mm-hmm. in palliative care. So how can we do this, do you think? I wish that schools of medicine, nursing, pharmacy, social work, chaplaincy, everybody would teach the basics. Don't you think that would be a good start? Oh, yeah, that would be huge. I, I, I was I'm thinking of a patient who um, at the county hospital that I had was um, – on um, isolation for some infection, but he had advanced HIV and he had pain and the, the MEDD just kept going up and up and up and 
Um, I asked the chaplain, we did not have our own chaplain at that time, to see him. And the chaplain spent about an hour with him, found out that he had, was estranged from his brother, reached out to the brother, the brother came in, and there were practically no PRNs of mm-hmm. opioids needed after that. I mean, mm-hmm. the pain was more spiritual and existential and psychosocial mm-hmm. than it was physical. Wow. And, it was our, and it was the chaplain who picked that up and made that work. Oh, that's so important. It's so important. That's why it takes a village to get this done. I'm always surprised by, um, I think veterinarians get more training in advanced illness, total person training than we do. So there are actually, there's a national and an international hospice and palliative care veterinarian association. We actually had a vet graduate from our program last year. She's amazing. Um, oh. So I, I would love to see this movement continue where, you know, we increasingly add this to our professional curricula. And people who are already out in practice, whether it's just, you know, continued self-development, you know, reading and so forth, uh, or all the way up to something formalized like our program, for example. <clears throat> but it's such an important there, skill set to have. Yeah. There is an elective called the Healer's Art that was um, um, started by Dr. Rachel Naomi Rimmon. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to the faculty training program with Dr. Rimmon. But I would say that probably over half of the people there were veterinarians. Oh, really? Um, wanting to teach, yeah, wanting to teach their students mm-hmm. about compassion and mm-hmm. the whole person. And, yeah, because, you know, if, you, if you're a dog person, you kind of freak out if something happens to your dog. Oh, my gosh, yes. As a matter of fact, there we had, um, we've always had dogs, but we had a 17-year-old miniature poodle and he was blind and deaf and he had dementia and he had type 1 diabetes he was a red hot mess but he was a happy camper walking around bumping into walls living the dream eating like a cat big horse um (laughs) but he was really not doing well we had taken him to the vet it was a a large vet practice and it was a vet i'd never seen before so it was funny because out of the blue she said have you ever heard of the expression palliative care my husband was like oh my god here we go (laughs) Um, but he actually did they said he'll probably go 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 and then something minor will happen and he'll crash quickly and that did happen last year at the academy meeting so they had to put him down while I was at that meeting and I'm crying like a lunatic in my exhibit oh goodness I didn't know um, dogs got dementia well, he sure did. As a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Marchitelli, who graduated in our program, used my dog Gucci as one of her patients when we did the neurodegenerative module. And apparently the data is quite a bit stronger in dogs than it is humans for the use of wow. selegiline. Yeah. Wow. So I learned quite a bit from her no on that. Yes, there you go. But uh, oh. all the people skills and having the conversations and the goals of care, it applies across the board. So I think we should teach the whole world to sing. And look what important things we do. Like we help people get married and fulfill their wildest dream. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing you were able to do that. Anything else you want to share with our listeners? I I wish it lived closer. We could be besties. But I'm up here in Maryland. You're down there in Texas. (laughs) Oh, because I do know when uh, I, I met you when you were at UT, um, Health Houston for the geriatrics and palliative session, and I met you. And I think you hadn't started the master's program, but it was about to be started. Mm-hmm. And I told you I would do it. So I was going through the exhibit hall, I guess last year, 
mm-hmm. and you were sitting at that table, and I didn't mm-hmm. know you lost your dog, but you asked me, when are you going to do my master's program? So I signed up, okay. but I was all excited because you um, called me by name. You probably read it off my badge, but I imagined that you actually remembered me, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, wow. I know. I, well, and you, you never get away from me. I mean, once you're in my orbit, I will pester you the rest of your life. So, it's uh, that is wonderful. And I want to say too, the um, discussion post um, mm-hmm. can be so rich in the master's course. Yes. I mean, I have had conversations with people that that have been amazing, and especially for me because I'm actually, um, although I'm running around mouth a lot, I'm actually very introverted. So to be able to interact with people in that way where you can think about what you want to say and reflect mm-hmm. on what they said and then respond, mm-hmm. it's really powerful for me. I just love that. I think that's one of the hallmarks of the program, the interprofessional nature. And my other favorite, favorite thing about the program is when people say in their reflection post, I learned this Monday night and Tuesday I used it at work. I love, love, yeah. love practical learning. I don't like read these 200 pages and write a paper. I I wouldn't do that, so I would never do that to a student. I think our assignments and our activities have to be, uh, adults are pretty impatient learners. Adults live and die by what's in it for me. So, you know, we have to make sure that we are meeting our learners' needs and no shilly-shallying about with silly assignments. So we really worked hard to make sure everything is pertinent and applied and practical and you can use it tomorrow. So I hope we've met our goal. And the way it's taught is so engaging. Well, like the inhaler videos that we watched this time. I just love fun. those. And when you um, act in the videos, oh, I just love that. The one <laughs> where um, the, second, the, ex, the other woman was trying to be at the um, family meeting with you, oh. and you said something about, oh, that'll be dead man walking. I was yeah. just rolling in the floor. That was she was my resident. She's my best friend today. <laughs> so, oh. so she, was, she was the floozy girlfriend, and I was the estranged spouse. Yeah. And the last like, course you'll take. Doing at the family meeting? I know. <laughs> the last course that you'll take, um, we have a case of a dementia. We have three cases that progress each week. They get sicker and sicker. And we have one man who has Alzheimer's dementia. And I play the role of the wife. And I, I hate him. He's been mean to me all of our married life. He beat me. <laughs> he was verbally abusive. And I was saying things oh. like, I can't wait for him to die. And students would be like, I didn't think Lynn was really like that. And I was like, I'm not really like that. I was playing a role. My husband's alive and well, and I love him. Oh, my God. But it's so much fun. It's because you're so convincing. Oh, there you go. If I didn't do this pharmacy education thing, I'd be an actress, huh? Yeah. In the one um, where you're Miss Johnson, um, Mm -hmm. pancreatic, and I think you're trying to have a little bit flattened affect. Uh But the you, the the dynamic you just comes through. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's very cool. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Dr. Chappelle, I have really enjoyed speaking with you, and I know I'm going to post a link to a couple of the videos and the stories that you shared with me, and good show, good show. I mean, I'm lucky I made it through this without crying myself, and I I did cry over the video, especially watching the bride and the groom Uh, cry, and you filled up, and uh, oh my gosh. Nobody uh, cries alone when I'm in the room. That's for darn sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you keep up your awesome work, and uh, thank you for taking time to speak with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, 
Thank you. Thank you. For sure. So this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2020, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.